Hello, caller. You're on the air. Well, hello again, friend. I'm glad you're back. We didn't get to finish your story last week. The listeners lack, uh, catharsis. Well, you won't find any of that here. In the controversial trial of Dr. Sam Shepard and the case of a glue-sniffing executioner from the Soviet Union, here's part two of Deadly Doctors. Warning. What you're about to hear is true. At Hookswitch Hotline, we delve deep into shocking true crimes, including murder, violence, kidnapping, mutilation, and sexual assault. Not for children or the squeamish. Some will find this podcast disturbing. Listener discretion is strongly advised. When Dr. Samuel Shepard stepped into the dingy gray building that housed Cuyahoga County Criminal Court on October 24, 1966, his surroundings must have been only too familiar. He had been there before, 12 years ago, on the same charge, the brutal murder of his own wife, Marilyn, who had just been battered to death in the early hours of July 4, 1954. The first trial had been the longest murder trial in American history. For over two months, from October 18, 1954, until December 21, 1954, the jury had been battered with torrents of words. Accusations, pleadings, denials, and passionate legal arguments had rattled across the courtroom like machine gun fire. Judge Edward Blythen presided over the proceedings like a man suffering from shell shock. Before his eyes, he had watched the courtroom transform from a solemn house of justice into what seemed like a circus. Camera bulbs flashed continuously, television crewmen hurried back and forth loudly whispering directions to each other, and the press gallery was in constant noisy movement as journalists hastened to telephone their editors with news of the latest developments. Amid the hubbub, the father of the accused, Dr. Richard Allen Shepard, and Sam's two brothers, Stephen and Richard, sat solemnly at the back of the court. As they awaited the jury's verdict on the final day, they looked as tense and drawn as Sam himself. There was a sudden hush as Judge Blythen entered and resumed his seat. William J. Corrigan, Shepard's tough veteran attorney, followed, looking grim. Then came John Mahan, leader of the prosecution, his assistants, Saul Dana Chow and Thomas Perino, whose verbal skill and gift for damaging innuendo had left Samuel Shepard bewildered and exhausted. As they filed in, not one of the jury so much as glanced at Shepard. Defending counsel Corrigan placed his hand on Shepard's shoulder and prepared him for what was to come. He said, I think we've lost. Corrigan was right. Shepard was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. But the nightmare that started on July 4th had only just begun. The conviction unleashed a chain reaction of tragedies, both for the Shepard family and for others involved in the case. A month after the trial, Shepard's mother committed suicide, overcome by grief at the fate of her son, whom she still believed to be innocent. Shortly afterwards, Sam's father died, as though his heart had been broken by worry and disgrace. The murdered woman's family suffered equally, culminating in another suicide, that of Marilyn's father. Even a member of the jury, depressed and exhausted by the strain of the ordeal and the sensation surrounding it, had committed suicide. The case had divided the state of Ohio as it was to divide the nation. Was Shepard a ruthless wife killer, as the verdict indicated, or the victim of a cruel miscarriage of justice? The tale that unfolded to the jury was a complex one, and judgment was made infinitely more difficult by the press, which had conducted from the start a powerful vendetta against Shepard, his family, and the comfortable background from which they came. Screaming headlines had fomented suspicion and dislike long before Dr. Shepard set foot in court. 
The Cleveland press was one of the worst offenders. A headline read, Why isn't Sam Shepard in jail? In effect, the Cleveland press had pointed to Dr. Shepard as the murderer and implied that his family and friends were using their influence to shield him. When as a result of the hysterical press campaign against him, Sam Shepard was finally arrested, his family continued to suffer threats, insults, and anonymous telephone calls at all hours of the day and night from people fired up to anger by what they had read in the local newspapers. The trial itself proved a sort of public entertainment. Each installment was an event eagerly awaited and discussed. Newspapers sold by the millions and television items were given peak viewing. At 30, Sam was a brilliant neurosurgeon and the youngest son of Dr. Richard Shepard, a general surgeon and osteopath who had founded Cleveland's Bayview Hospital. Sam worked there with his father and two brothers, Richard and Stephen. He had married Marilyn Reese in 1945 and later bought a pleasant four-bedroom house for them near the hospital. The house was perched nearly 100 feet above the winding shore of Lake Erie and included a private beach. It was, like the Shepherds themselves, typically suburban, fashionable, and expensively middle class. The court heard how, on the evening of July 3, 1954, Samuel Shepard and his wife had entertained Mr. and Mrs. Ahern at a dinner at their house. Afterwards, Chip, the Shepherd's young son, was put to bed, and the two couples sat down to chat, drink, and watch television. By 12.30 a.m., everyone was tired, and the Aetherns were shown out by Marilyn alone because Sam, who had had a tough day at the hospital, had already fallen asleep on the couch. What happened afterwards depended solely on the evidence of one witness, Samuel Shepard, and the story he told, though it never varied over the years, was undeniably vague. Marilyn left Sam lying on the couch downstairs and went up to bed. Sometime later, according to Sam's testimony, he was awakened by the sounds of her screams, rushed upstairs, and was struck down from behind. He said, The next thing I knew, I was coming to. A very vague sensation in a sitting position right next to Marilyn's bed, facing the hallway, facing south. He said he looked at his wife, realized she was in, quote, in very bad condition, and felt that she was, quote, gone. Fearful for his son, he went into Chip's room and, quote, in some way evaluated that he was all right. Hearing a noise downstairs, he dashed down in time to see a shadowy figure fly through the back door and make for the beach. Sam gave chase and managed to grasp the figure from behind, but was again knocked unconscious. This time when he regained his senses, he was lying face down on the edge of the lake with most of his body in the water. He staggered to his feet, frozen and dripping wet, lurched once more toward the house and went upstairs. There he saw, in the dawn light, that Marilyn had been terribly beaten. He thought he'd determined that she was dead. Then at 5.45 a.m. he phoned his friend and neighbor Jay Spencer Houck, mayor of the town. For God's sake, Spen. For God's sake, Spen. Come quick. I think they've got Marilyn, he said. But, as the prosecution pointed out, there were some puzzling gaps in the story. The t-shirt he was wearing had disappeared. Why and where? Why had his medical case been found upside down, the contents spilled, and a box of morphine missing? If he had been lying with his head on the shore of the lake, why was there no sand in his hair? When Mayor Hawk arrived, accompanied by his wife, he found Shepard stripped to his waist, sodden wet, slumped in a chair. Mrs. Hawk rushed upstairs. She found the victim's lifeless body in her blood-soaked bed, pajama top drawn over her breasts, outspread legs dangling under the crossbar of the four-poster. The entire room was spattered with blood. Marilyn's skull showed that she had been beaten savagely on the head with a blunt instrument 35 times, the authorities said later. The police arrived, followed by Shepard's brother, Dr. Richard Shepard, and finally the coroner, Dr. Samuel Gerber. From the start, Gerber was skeptical. 
The displaced drawers and ransacked contents seemed like a clumsy attempt to simulate a burglary. He put Marilyn's death at between 3am and 4am, which would have given Samuel Shepard nearly three hours at least in which to remove evidence and arrange the house to suit his story. Richard broke the news to his brother that Marilyn was indeed dead. Mayor Hawk, however, gave the jury a much more damaging account of their dialogue. According to him, Richard had said, Did you do this, Sam? Implying that even Sam's own brother thought him capable of committing such an act. The jury heard of other oddities. Searchers found, among the shrubs near the house, the canvas bag Sam used on his boat. Inside the bag were his watch, slightly bloodstained, his fraternity ring, and the keys and chain that were normally affixed to his trouser. How had the bag arrived there with its contents? Had it been left there by the attacker? If so, why? Or had Sam left it there himself in some vague attempt to misguide the police? These questions were never answered. Others were never asked. Where, for example, had the fragment of torn red leather come from, which was found under Marilyn's bed? Fibers found under her fingernails were produced in court, but neither prosecution nor defense sought to explain their origin. A fragment of tooth was ignored as evidence, although it appeared that it may have been broken off as Marilyn bit her attacker, who withdrew his hand with force, and Dr. Sam had no scratches or bites on his hands or arms. In the end, three things were responsible for the jury's verdict of guilty. The first of these was the evidence given in court by the coroner, Dr. Samuel Gerber. He testified that the bloody imprint on the pillowcase beneath Marilyn's head was caused by a, quote, surgical instrument, end quote. The murder weapon had never been found in spite of intensive searches by the police. In its absence, what could be better than a testimony from the respected coroner that it was a surgical instrument? The kind of instrument, in fact, which only a surgeon such as Dr. Shepard was likely to possess. Gerber never explained and was never asked what kind of surgical instrument he had in mind, nor was one ever produced, but the jury were greatly impressed. The second factor was Shepard's penchant for extramarital affairs, which he had, at first, denied. This was taken up with great enthusiasm by the media and provided the prosecution with the perfect motive. Shepard had been having an affair with a young colleague, Susan Hayes. Perhaps he wanted his wife out of the way. If Shepard could lie about marital infidelity, the prosecution suggested, would he not also lie about killing his wife? Finally, and perhaps most important of all, there was the influence of the press, not only on the public in general, but also on the jury, whose members had followed the case with interest as reported in local newspapers before the trial and even during it. The local press had been particularly vindictive towards Shepard. But if the press campaign against him had helped to secure a conviction in 1954, it was the main reason why Shepard secured a new trial in 1966. On June 6 of that year, the U.S. Supreme Court overthrew their murder conviction on the grounds that prejudicial publicity had deprived him of a fair trial. It was the first decision of its kind in American history. For most of the intervening 12 years, Shepard had been in jail, but he had remained firmly in the news. Firstly, there was the repeated efforts at every level, local, state, and federal courts, to secure a new trial. Again and again, William Corrigan, Sam's fighting lawyer, saw his efforts fail. But Sam was still in jail when Corrigan died in 1961. Then, in 1963, there was another bizarre development. A wealthy young German divorcee from Dusseldorf, who had been corresponding with Sam Shepard after reading about his case, decided to come to the United States to see him. 
She turned out to be stunningly beautiful, and at their first meeting in Ohio's Marion Penitentiary, the couple gave each other love tokens in the presence of the prison guards as a symbol of their engagement. Once more, the press latched on. Wherever she went, cameras flashed and reporters barked their questions. Was this some stunt engineered by Shepard's new lawyer, Lee Bailey? Bailey was shrewd, young, dynamic, ambitious for success, hardworking, and above all, a master manipulator of publicity. If publicity had put Shepard in, perhaps it would also help get him out. In any event, once the flamboyant Boston lawyer had taken over the case, Sam Shepard was rarely out of the news for any length of time. Bailey vowed to secure a retrial, and he did, but after the Supreme Court decision, the press were very wary of attacking Dr. Sam, and the coverage was guarded and often sympathetic. On October 24, 1966, Dr. Samuel Shepard, now remarried to the German divorcee, stood trial for the second time in the same place for the same murder. Judge Francis Talty entered the courtroom first. Handsome and gray-haired, he was known to be tough but fair. It was he who ordered all the photographers and movie cameramen to stay outside the court building and forbade newsmen to seek information from anyone directly involved in the case. Next came the prosecutors, John T. Corrigan, no relation to Shepard's first defense lawyer, William Corrigan, and his assistant, Leo Spilacy. They were both highly skilled courtroom performers and looked confident right from the start. But then so did the two who followed. Shepard's prime defense lawyer, the youthful F. Lee Bailey, and his boyish crew-cut assistant, Rush Sherman. Bailey was an imposing figure. His suits were impeccable, almost too impeccable, some said, and his tone of voice resonant and sure, perhaps a little too sure. Finally, Dr. Samuel Shepard appeared, not to the flashing cameras and buzzing whispers of anger and innuendo, as before, but to a court that seemed eerily silent. Sam looked fit, but his tightly drawn lips were a clear sign of the strain he was undergoing. This was his last chance to prove his innocence. If the jury found him guilty this time, he would be guilty forever. Even when finally released from jail, he knew that society would never take him back if he was found guilty. He would remain an outcast, a convicted murderer for the rest of his life. Sergeant Robert Schottke, one of Cleveland's best homicide detectives, was the first important prosecution witness to take the stand. He'd been the first to accuse Dr. Sam back in 1954, and this had helped to make his name as a brilliant officer. In the cross-examination, Bailey fired at him with both barrels. He referred to the canvas bag containing Sam's blood-smeared watch, ring, and key. He said, Did you realize that Marilyn's killer had probably left prints on those items of jewelry? Schottke admitted that this was probably true. Bailey continued, And did you ascertain just what prints were there before accusing anyone of this murder? There was a pause and then a faint but audible no. Bailey then asked the witness about the injuries which Shepard received at the hands of the supposed attacker. Schottke admitted that he had not inquired whether Sam could have inflicted the injuries himself or whether they must have been inflicted by someone else. The astute lawyer pounced. He said, So you accused the doctor without finding out whether it could have been him or not? Schottke nodded in agreement. It was an opening victory for the defense. Next on the stand was Dr. Samuel Gerber, the coroner. He too had become well known since the 1954 trial and had lectured all over the country on the Shepard case, always proving that Dr. Sam was guilty. Effley Bailey went straight to the crux of Gerber's argument, the blood-stained pillow which showed, according to the coroner, the imprint of a surgical instrument. Gerber admitted at once that he had never seen an instrument of the sort he had in mind, though he had certainly looked. 
Bailey said, Tell the jury, doctor, where you've searched for the instrument during the last 12 years. The doctor replied, All over the United States. Delighted, Bailey feigned an expression of surprise. He said, Please tell us what you found, he demanded of the coroner. Gerber shook his head sadly. I didn't find one. There was a murmur of astonishment around the court. Even Judge Talty reacted. Corrigan and Spalacy looked as if they were on the point of choking their star witness with the blood-smeared pillow themselves. Bailey continued, Did you, Coroner Gerber, once say about a month before Marilyn Shepard was murdered that you intended someday to get the Shepherds? Gerber shouted back, Any man who says that is a liar. But to the jury, he was now a blusterer more interested in convenience than the truth. The trial was going well for Shepard, and everyone both inside and outside the courtroom knew it. The odds in Las Vegas were approaching 20 to 1 for acquittal in Dr. Sam's favor. But the prosecution had another ace. They called Mary Cowan, Gerber's assistant. It was she who had examined the contents of the canvas bag, and she came to court with color transparencies of the objects found inside. She flashed onto the screen the picture of Dr. Sam's watch, as it was then, speckled with blood. These speckles, she testified, were caused by, quote, flying blood. It was a tense moment in the courtroom. The speckles must have appeared on the watch while Shepard was beating his wife to death, argued Corrigan. There was no other way it could have happened. Now it was Bailey's turn to look worried. He questioned Mary Cowan on every aspect of her testimony, but failed to make her change it. The longer the trial proceeded, the more it became obvious that the entire case hung on the flying blood theory. When he was not in court, Bailey spent his whole time questioning Sam, probing, searching for an answer to the riddle. How had the blood spots appeared on the watch? Bailey, Sherman, and Shepard spent hours examining every possibility, casting their minds back to the damning transparency. Typically, it was Bailey who found an answer. He remembered seeing minute particles of blood on the inside of the watch band. So, he concluded, the blood must have gotten onto the watch after it had been removed from Sam's wrist. It was a clever argument, and the jury accepted it. Bailey, his confidence restored, summoned up on Tuesday, November 15th, by dismissing the prosecution's case as 10 pounds of hogwash in a 5-pound bag. On the following day, the jury declared Dr. Samuel Shepard not guilty. But life outside of prison brought him none of the happiness for which he had fought so long. He made numerous efforts to be reinstated in the medical register, but prejudice against him remained, and it was more than a year before he was able to resume his practice. When he did begin medical work again, he found that many of his patients distrusted him and were only too eager to sue him for negligence. Finally, he was forced out of the profession because no insurance company would continue to cover him. Meanwhile, Ariane sued him for divorce, claiming that he threatened her and carried a heavy axe and a knife. Later, Shepard met up with an athlete called Strickland and turned to professional wrestling to earn a living. He also got married for a third time to Strickland's pretty 19-year-old daughter, but his efforts to regain a place in society were all in vain. Six months after his marriage, his health began to decline, and ignoring his frantic bride's pleads to see a doctor, he died a sad and inwardly lonely man on April 6, 1970. The coroner's verdict was death by natural causes, but perhaps he wanted to die. As those near him suggested, worn out by society's rejection of him and the hopelessness of his struggle to reestablish himself. Dr. Jacob Sokol, chief physician of the Juvenile Hall for Los Angeles County, said, A new and deadly adolescent craze sniffing for kicks is raiding the country. Hundreds of young people between the ages of 8 and 18 are secretly inhaling the fumes released by the solvents found in plastic cements. End quote. That was in 1964. 
Since then, glue and many other forms of toxic aromatics have become a grave problem for forensic investigators. The city of Detroit was one of the first to pass an ordinance prohibiting people under the age of 21 from buying model glue without their parents' written consent. The ordinance also required shopkeepers to keep a record of youngsters to whom they sold glue, and the sniffing of the glue was made illegal. Since June 1965, violators could be jailed up to 90 days and fined up to $500. Knowing the risks of toxic aromatics, forensic workers did not regard this ordinance as a sick joke, as unfortunately did many potential victims. A 17-year-old lost his life after sniffing glue and drinking one quart of beer. He died in the hospital after 24 hours. The autopsy report from the Sacramento Clinical Laboratory stated that the final diagnosis was compatible with intoxication from sniffing glue. A 24-year-old man, after drinking one can of beer and sniffing glue, lapsed into a coma and was dead on arrival in the hospital. One high school student was found dead in Richmond County, California after sniffing glue, and two other deaths were reported in almost the same month, one in Fall River, Massachusetts, the other in Kansas. After the euphoric stage of sniffing glue, two young boys fell to their deaths from the tenement roofs in New York City. It was quickly realized that toxic aromatics of this type promote criminal tendencies. As Dr. Sokol reported, a 16-year-old boy assaulted his 9-year-old brother and held lighted matches over the mouth of a 2-year-old brother. Another warning came from a report in the Times Roanoke, Virginia. A 14-year-old and his 13-year-old friend began sniffing model aircraft glue. The boys emptied the contents of a plastic cement tube into a plastic bag, then inhaled the vapor. The younger boy stated that his companion kinda went wild, crazy, and acted like he was a bird. The younger boy left, frightened, and when he returned an hour later, he discovered that his friend had found a gun in the lobby and had shot himself. His mind was unhinged, it was said at the autopsy, from the intoxicating effects of the glue sniffing. Dr. Sokol later disclosed, quote, A number of children, boys and girls, meet in occupied houses where they sniff glue together and later have sexual relations, both homosexual and heterosexual. Several episodes of homosexual relations have occurred between adults and children under the influence of this glue. Some of these sexual perverts are encouraging the children to sniff glue with the intention of having illicit relations with them, end quote. A quote from Dr. Sokol may be disturbing. Quote, In 1973, police investigating the killing of Dean Coral revealed that Coral had brutally murdered at least 23 young boys in Houston. Often he had held glue-sniffing parties first. In the British Medical Journal, December 2nd issue, 1962, the glue problem was dealt with for the first time outside the United States when doctors Julius Mary and Nicholas Zarkadius described cases of glue addiction. It spurred pathologists and forensic workers general to appreciate the symptoms. It revealed to pathologists and forensic workers the symptoms. Under the influence of glue, a victim suffers dizziness and euphoria, usually coupled with double vision. Tremors may be noted, at times simulating a condition of alcoholic intoxication, while, as might be expected, decreased reflexes are noted, together with chest pain, coughing, numbness of the extremities, and involuntary rapid movement of the eyeballs, usually from side to side. Toxic aromatics have long been a forensic problem, and glue sniffing has during the past decade been only a novel form. During the Second World War, servicemen on lonely hazardous sites soon discovered that the regulation fire extinguishers with carbon tetrachloride, and that this could be used illicitly, but harmlessly, for cleaning uniforms. It also became obvious that the fumes caused euphoria. Around the time the Americans discovered the side effects of model glue, 
Britain was developing a trendy group of cleaning agent sniffers. Other addicts went for paint thinners, industrial solvents, and a black market developed in the illegal use of chlorinated hydrocarbons under various trade names. Deaths resulted. The tragedy was that by that time of the post-mortem, there was really no positive indication that death was the result of illicit sniffing. As Dr. H.J. Walls put it in 1968, until the development of gas chromatography, the chance of finding any of these substances after death from inhalation of the vapor was negligible. Now that this ultra-sensitive tool is available to us, it will in all probability detect them in air withdrawn from the container in which the lungs or brain have been placed." End quote. The sample, which may only be a few microliters of gas or liquid, is fed into a long capillary of cupronickel, or stainless steel, and made to take a path of from 10 to 100 feet. The gas molecules hit the wall of the capillary, and an electrically heated injector head keeps the sample vaporized through its entire path. A so-called partition effect causes the constituents to separate out, and electronic detectors are activated separately by each, separated by a retention time. This retention time is the same for each of the specific substances. So the forensic worker now has little difficulty in detecting the presence of any toxic aromatic. While great progress has been made with gas chromatography, unfortunately there are still some forensic mysteries left about the reasons for the sniffing craze. We can make artificial scents so that plastic car seats smell like real leather, and we can simulate the scents of onions, oranges, and a score of foods and flowers. But we still do not fully know how man activates his sense of smell. The upper internal zones of the nose are lined with smell cells, each connected with a minute nerve fiber of its own. One set of nerves linked with the nose has nothing to do with smell, but only with feelings, tickling, prickling, affecting the nose, and hurting it. This pair of nerves can be affected by, say, ammonia, which is irritating, as well as having an odor. The other set of nerves are known as the first pair, because they come off from the brain in front of the others, an indication of the animal origins of man when the sense of smell was vital. It was Sir William Ramsey who advanced the theory that the power of eliciting smell increases with the size of the molecules of a gas or a liquid. Thus, hydrogen and oxygen do not smell, and their molecules are small. Pleasant smells, such as those of flowers and scent, are mostly from oils, which are chemically related. Smell cells are extremely accommodating, and this is why, after quite a short time, a glue sniffer, or the addict to any other toxic aromatic, needs to have a much heavier dose. In Victorian days, women carried little glass-cut bottles of smelling salts as a cure for faintness. Inside the bottle was a mixture of ammonium carbonate and scent, and a sniff of this gave a quick kick to the sensory system. It was a temporary palliative, so was glue. There was always a danger in publishing forensic information on aromatics that inadvertently one may start a new addiction craze. Equally, it could be said that ignorance creates a danger. Anyway, the forensic worker needs to know the potential dangers so that symptoms can be diagnosed quickly. While the pyrene type of fire extinguisher originally contained carbon tetrachloride, types by some other makers contain methyl bromide, which is not only toxic, but highly poisonous. Carbon tet is a liver necrosing agent, but less harmful in this way than tetrachlorothene, another industrial liquid to which many workers have access. In Britain, there is close cooperation on aromatics between the Home Office and other government departments, so that although the trade names of several compounds have been changed, their toxicity has altered when dangers have been pointed out to the manufacturers. This was headlined in Chicago, when in the single year of 1929, there were 25 cases resulting from a refrigerant leak in a factory. Methyl chloride was the cooling agent. 
When it became tragically obvious that the exposure to this gas could cause death, the refrigerator industry began developing safe alternatives. Inhalation of any of the petroleum distillants can cause vertigo, but the sickness barrier is usually a warning, as anyone will know who has accidentally swallowed a little gas from an automobile tank. Benzene, on the other hand, is a highly volatile liquid which in excess can cause narcosis and death. Addicts who have not heard of the glue craze and who have access to benzene in industry have been found to misuse it for sniffing. Like glue, it affects the cerebral and nervous system, causing incoherency and excitement. From the same chemical family as nitrobenzene, which is a most dangerous aromatic so that forensic workers are among the first to pray that it will never be used for sniffing parties. It was Professor Keith Simpson who drew attention to a case of a man who spilt a little oil of mirbane on his trousers while he was carrying a 5 gallon can of the fluid. He became shaky, collapsed, and spilt more on his clothing. The danger was not realized so his clothes were not removed until he arrived in the hospital where he was found to be unconscious with slow irregular breathing, small fixed pupils, and pale gray-blue skin. Blood withdrawn from a vein was said to be as brown as chocolate. He died an hour after admission. Some of these toxic aromatics may be excreted in the urine, and if the urine is considerably darkened, the forensic worker is wise to suspect illegal sniffing. The skin may also take on a lilac hue. This too was first confirmed by Dr. Sokol in Los Angeles County after he had investigated his first 700 cases of glue sniffing children. He said, Our finding revealed that glue sniffing causes liver, kidney, and lung damage and causes abnormalities in the peripheral blood. Our findings also reveal, among other things, that anemia has a particular manifestation among glue addicts. And now, the glue killer. There is a decrease in the white blood count, an increase in white cells, and changes in form, shape, and color of the red cells. We find Bacillus felix stiplings and target cells, which indicate a toxic and anemic condition. The urine analysis frequently reveals pus, albumin, casts, bacteria, and blood." End quote. While we don't yet know why some toxic aromatics are so attractive to addicts, there is no mystery about the killer in some model glues. It is toluene. This is a liquid hydrocarbon which used to be obtained from tolu balsam, but now comes from coal tar. It has a burning taste and acts as a depressant on the central nervous system. In Los Angeles County, a 41-year-old baker died from glue sniffing. The autopsy revealed marked congestion with extensive intraalveolar hemorrhage of the lungs caused simply by the direct irritation of toluene. When extracted from the tissues, this was also found to have caused congestion of the tracheobronchial tree. Forensic workers are constantly striving to assist the lawmakers in establishing a firm line on aromatics, such as exists with poisons, where, for example, you either take arsenic or you don't. There has been no positive demarcation with aromatics, so an addict can start with tobacco smoke, carbon tet, or anything which smells exciting, even cheap scent, before the addict graduates to toluene-based glues. Glue has an advantage over the others to an addict because it is easy to get, easy to carry, and has no giveaway odor unless inhaled closely. In the euphoric stage of intoxication, addicts do not know how close they may be to death. With benzene inhalation, for example, the death rate can be as high as 1 in 10. To some degree, aromatics appeal to us all, but the forensic worker who enjoys the bouquet of a fine brandy and the aroma of a good cigar can reflect that in those instances, the mortality rate is relatively low. But the abusers of aromatics don't always fit the stereotype of your typical addict. Case in point, Kremlin's executioner, Lavrenti Beria. 
The sleek black limousine prowled along the curb of a street in the center of Moscow. Sitting in the back of the car, his pale, partly muffled face pressed to the window was one of the greatest criminals of modern times, a man with millions of deaths to his credit. It was after dark, and Lavrenti Beria, the head of the Russian secret police, was out looking for sex. He could be seen hailing any unaccompanied girl or young woman. Those foolish enough to listen to him and to get into his car were taken to his private apartment, where they were liberally plied with vodka and wine. Then, willing or not, they had intercourse with Beria, whose sexual appetite was only equaled by his love of making people suffer. One of his favorite and less vicious pastimes was to play crude practical jokes on high-ranking members of the Soviet Politburo when they attended dinner parties at the Kremlin. Under the tolerant eye of dictator Joseph Stalin, Beria would adjust his eyeglasses and then select his victim. One evening, he chose the most important guest, the deputy prime minister, Anastas Mikoyan. He sidled up to Mikoyan's chair and waited until Stalin gave the order to sit. Then he quickly placed a ripe tomato on the deputy premier's seat. Mikoyan lowered himself onto the chair, heard a strange squelching noise, and felt something wet and sticky on the back of his trousers. Stalin and Beria began to roar with laughter, and the policeman called out, Don't worry, it's only a joke. Have this glass of wine. It'll make you feel better. Mikoyan took the preferred glass, swallowed some of the blood-red liquid, then almost choked. Barry had laced the wine with salt. There was another side to Beria, however, one that made him the most sinister figure in the communist regime. As chief of the NKVD, or secret police, he'd been responsible during the late 1930s for the liquidation of thousands of eastern Poles and people from the Russian-occupied Baltic states. His mentality was that of a callous, psychopathic killer, and as such, he appealed to the less openly cruel Stalin. Like the Soviet leader, Beria had been born of simple peasant stock in the southwest republic of Georgia, where poverty and hardship were the norm. In 1917, when he was 18 years old, he joined the Bolshevik party, and by 1931 had schemed his way to an important position in the Cheka and GPU security services. Stalin closely followed his career, and later rewarded Beria by making him his personal executioner and official historian. In 1935, he was called upon to falsify records of the Communist Party when Stalin expressed his dissatisfaction with the already published works and memoirs. Stalin said, I want you to prepare a corrected history of the pre-revolutionary Bolshevism in the Caucasus, one which will give me my just due as the architect and pioneer of the new order. A short while later, the rewritten work was serialized in Pravda, which is Russian for truth, which was the central organ of the communist movement. In December 1938, Beria was again promoted, and this time was given complete charge of the NKVD. His predecessor, Nikolai Zheshov, had conveniently disappeared, an increasing habit among top communists, and Beria rapidly filled the upper echelons with his own cronies and yes-men. It wasn't difficult to be branded a traitor by Beria. All his victims had to do was show they were not accredited members of the Russian Communist Party. That was enough to have hundreds of professors, clergymen, scholars, bankers and intellectuals put into cattle trucks and transported to life imprisonment in one of the dreaded labor camps. Purge followed purge, and the regime of terror was only halted by the start of World War II. By then, Beria was also the Minister for Internal Affairs and was determined that none of his political or foreign prisoners should fall into the hands of the advancing Nazis. He instructed his gunmen, the NKVD Special Purpose Troops, to descend on the jails and eliminate the inmates. 
The worst instance of this took place in Minsk, capital and economic center of the Belarusian public, where 10,000 criminals were crammed into a camp meant 4,000. The helpless internees were machine gunned through the windows of their overcrowded cells. Those who escaped the bullets were finished off by hand grenades and by the soldiers soaking the building in petrol and setting it on fire. In 1951, five years after Beria had been replaced as head of the NKVD, a new wave of terror began to sweep through Russia. Even Stalin feared for his own safety, and especially that of his wife and schoolgirl daughter, Svetlania. When he learned that Svetlania was staying with Beria and his wife, Nina, at their country home, he ordered her to return to Moscow at once. He said, I don't trust Beria. He could hold you as hostage and try to force me from office. Shortly after this, to his alarm and consternation, Beria was accused of being an imperialist agent and was threatened with one of the show trials of which the communists were so fond. Before any action was taken against him, however, Russia was stunned by the death of Stalin in March 1953. Beria's arrest was in swift and dramatic. His trial was fixed for the following December, when he was also accused of having been a double agent for the Russian intelligence service. The truth about this was never established, although such a possibility was denied by government spokesmen in London. It was also not definitely established if Beria actually was put on trial. According to the official Soviet report, he'd been secretly tried and then shot for high treason December 23, 1953. Other sources, however, claim that Beria had suffered a fate similar to that of thousands of his victims. It was said that on his arrest he had tried to grab a gun and make a break for it. He was then seized by several leading communists, including McCoyan, the butt of so many jokes, and unceremoniously strangled by them. Nikita Khrushchev later confirmed this account when he emerged as the most prominent member of the collective leadership, which took Stalin's place as supreme dictator. In any event, Beria's death and career were a severe embarrassment to the large Soviet encyclopedia, which had lately included a eulogy on him. Owners of the work were instructed to remove the article and the photograph which accompanied it. Officially, Beria the Butcher has never existed within the Soviet Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. With every crime, someone somewhere has information. That someone could be you. Email us at hookswitchhotline at gmail.com or leave a message at 415-448-7263. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hook Switch Hotline. Join us next week when we'll dive deep into more graphic true crime.